intellectual and ideological perspective, of course, all her suitors were complete worms. There was, to be sure, one cornet who was reading Lamartine and had even heard of Schopenhauer, and he had been more subtle in paying court to her than the others. But Varya had explained to him, as one comrade to another, that she was traveling to join her fiancé, after which the cornet's behavior had been quite irreproachable. He had not been at all bad-looking, either, rather like Lamontov. Oh, to hell with the cornet. The second stage of her journey had also gone off without a hitch. There was a stagecoach that ran from Bucharest to Tuna Magarela. She had been obliged to swallow a little dust as she bounced and jolted along, but it had brought her within arm's reach of her goal. For rumor had it that the general headquarters of the army of the Danube was located on the far side of the river, in Saravici. This was the point at which she had to put into effect the final and most crucial part of the plan that she had worked out back in St. Petersburg. That was what Varya called it to herself, The Plan, with capital letters. Yesterday evening, under cover of darkness, she had crossed the Danube in a boat a little above Zimnitsa, where two weeks previously the heroic 14th Division under General Dragomirov had completed a forced crossing of that formidable water barrier. This was the beginning of Turkish territory, the zone of military operations, and it would certainly be only too easy to slip up here. There were Cossack patrols roaming the roads, and if she ever let her guard down, she was as good as done for. She would be packed off back to Bucharest in the blink of an eye. But Varya was a resourceful girl, so she had anticipated this and taken appropriate measures. The discovery of a coaching inn in the Bulgarian village on the south bank of the Danube had been really a great stroke of luck, and after that things had gone from good to better. The landlord understood Russian, and had promised to give her a reliable vodach, a guide, for only five rubles. Varya had bought wide trousers, much like Turkish chalvars, a shirt, boots, a sleeveless jacket, and an idiotic cloth cap, and the change of clothes had instantly transformed her from a European lady into a skinny Bulgarian youth who would not arouse the slightest suspicion from any patrol. She had deliberately commissioned a roundabout route, avoiding the marching columns, in order to enter Tsarevitsi not from the north, but from the south. And there, in the general army headquarters, was Pyotr Yablokov, Varya's... well, actually it is not quite clear who he is, her fiancé, her comrade, her husband. Let us call him her former husband and future fiancé and also, naturally, her comrade. They had set out while it was still dark on a creaky ramshackle karutza, a Romanian-style cart. Her vodach, Mitko, tight-lipped with a gray mustache, chewed tobacco all the while, constantly ejecting long streams of brown spittle onto the road. Varya winced every time he did it. At first he had crooned some exotic Balkan melody, then he had fallen silent and sunk into a reverie. It was clear enough now what ideas he had been entertaining. He could have killed me, Varya thought with a shudder, or even worse, and without the slightest problem. Who would bother investigating in these parts? They would just blame those, what's their names? Bashi Bazooks. But though things may have stopped short of murder, they had turned out quite badly enough. That traitor Mitko had led his female traveling companion to a tavern that more than anything else resembled a bandit's den. He had seated her at a table and ordered some cheese and a jug of wine to be brought, while he himself turned back toward the door, gesturing as much as to say, 
I'll be back in a moment. Varya had dashed after him, not wishing to be left alone in this dim, dirty, and distinctly malodorous sink of iniquity, but Mitko had said he needed to step outside, not to put too fine an edge on it, in order to satisfy a call of nature. When Varya did not understand, he had explained his meaning with a gesture, and she had returned to her seat, covered in confusion. The duration of the call of nature had exceeded all conceivable limits. Varya ate a little of the salty, unappetizing cheese, took a sip of the sour wine, and then, unable any longer to endure the curiosity that the fearsome denizens of the public house had begun to evince toward her person, she went out into the yard. Outside the door, she froze in horror. There was not a trace of the caruzza, or of the trunk with all her things that it contained. Her traveling medicine chest was in the trunk, and in the medicine chest, between the lint and the bandages, lay her passport and absolutely all her money. Varya was just about to run out onto the road when the landlord, with a bright crimson nose and warts on his cheek, had come darting out of the kochma in his red shirt. He shouted angrily and gestured, Pay up first and then you can leave. Varya went back inside because the landlord had frightened her, and she had nothing with which to pay him. She sat down quietly in the corner and tried to think of what had happened as an adventure. But she failed miserably. There was not a single woman in the tavern. The dirty, loud-mouthed yokels behaved quite unlike Russian peasants, who are quiet and inoffensive, and talk among themselves in low voices until they get drunk, while these louts were bawling raucously as they downed red wine by the tankard, constantly erupting into loud and predatory, or so it seemed to Varya, laughter. At a long table on the far side of the room they were playing dice, breaking into uproarious disputes at every throw. On one occasion, when they fell to quarreling more loudly than usual, a small man, who was extremely drunk, was struck over the head with a clay tankard. He lay there sprawled under the table, and nobody paid the slightest attention to him. The landlord nodded in Varya's direction and made some crude remark, at which the men sitting at nearby tables turned in her direction and roared with malevolent laughter. Varya squirmed and tugged her cap down over her eyes. Nobody else in the tavern was wearing a cap, but she couldn't take it off or her hair would come tumbling down. Not that it was really long. Varya wore her hair short, as befitted a modern woman, but even so it would betray her as a member of the weaker sex. That disgusting designation invented by men, the weaker sex. But alas, it was only too true. Now their eyes were boring into Varya from every side, and their glances were oily and repulsive. The only ones who seemed to have no time for her were the dice players and a dejected-looking type seated two tables away with his back to her, his nose buried in a tankard of wine. All she could see of him was a head of short-trimmed black hair graying at the temples. Varya began to feel really terrified. Stop sniveling, she said to herself. You are a strong, grown-up woman not some prim young lady. You have to tell them you're Russian and you're traveling to join your fiancé in the army. We are the liberators of Bulgaria. Everyone here is glad to see us. And then, speaking Bulgarian is so easy. You just have to add ta to everything. Russian army ta, fiancé ta, fiancé ta of Russian soldier ta, or something of the sort. She turned toward the window. Maybe Mitko would suddenly turn up. 
Maybe he had taken the horses to the watering place, and now he was on his way back. But alas, there was no sign of Mitko or any Karutsa out on the dusty street. Varya did, however, notice something that had failed to catch her attention earlier. Protruding above the houses was a low minaret, covered in chipped and peeling paint. Oh, could the village possibly be Muslim? But the Bulgarians were Christians, Orthodox. Everybody knew that. What's more, they were drinking wine, and that was forbidden to Muslims by the Koran. But if the village was Christian, then what on earth did the minaret mean? And if it was Muslim, then whose side were they on, ours or the Turks? Hardly ours. It looked as though the army ta might not be much help after all. Oh, Lord, what was she to do? At the age of fourteen, in a holy scripture class, little Varya Suvorova had been struck by an idea so unimpeachable in its very obviousness that it was hard to believe nobody had ever thought of it before. If God created Adam first and Eve afterward, far from demonstrating that men were more important, it showed that women were more perfect. Man was the experimental prototype of the human being, the rough draft, while woman was the final, approved version, as revised and amended. Why, it was clear as day. But for some reason the real and interesting side of life belonged exclusively to the men, and all the women did was have children and do embroidery, then have more children and do more embroidery. Why was there such injustice in the world? Because men were stronger and that meant she had to be strong. And so little Varya had decided she was going to live her life differently. The United States already had...